0: uh hey
1: this is ed so this is a podcast is
0: that right this is okay we're this podcasting right now that's awesome this is straight from the cutter's mouth
1: welcome to straight from the cutter's mouth a retina podcast at least once a week we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery i'm your host dr jay Schreeder. today on episode 176 it's journal club time Doctors Farina Ali and M. Ali Khan joined me to discuss three recent publications in major journals. First, a discussion of preoperative anti-VEGF prior to diabetic vitrectomy. Next, the incidence of retinal detachment after intravitreal injection. And finally, changes in anti-VEGF usage before and after the release of the CAT trial results. Links to the articles will be listed in the episode description. An additional list of financial disclosures will be attached in the episode description. You can now claim CME credits via the AAO website. Simply click on the link in the episode description to claim CME for select episodes. Also, we are looking for feedback from you, the listener. We have a survey that is going out for a two-and-a-half-year anniversary. Uh, You'll see links to it in the emails that go out. You'll see it up on Facebook, and I'm also putting it up on Twitter. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We sent a similar survey out to members of major societies recently. Um, But we have some more specific questions. For example, do you like our intro music? What sort of episodes do you prefer? Um, This is helpful just to get a sense of what we're doing and what we're doing well and how we can improve going forward. So please uh, fill out the survey. It takes about five minutes of your time. You can do it on your mobile device, and we greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, is now happy to be joined for this journal club by two retina specialists, first in alphabetical order, Dr. Farina Ali, who's uh, calling us from uh, Turkey, and she's part of um, uh, the group in Dallas, as well as affiliated with Genentech. Farina, thanks for joining us.
2: Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me.
1: And I have Dr. Ali Khan from the Doheny Eye Institute in Los Angeles, California, part of UCLA. Ali, welcome back.
0: Thanks, Jay. I'm not not in a place as cool as Turkey, but... Uh...
1: So far, so good. <laughs> well, um, the first article we're going to discuss, <laughs> and again, all, all these articles will be listed in the episode description, is entitled "Preoperative Intravitreal Bevacizumab for Tractional Retinal Detachment Secondary to Proliferative Diabetic Retinopathy." This was a prospective randomized clinical trial from the Pacoris group, the Pan American Collaborative Retina Group, by Revelo et al. Um, this was published uh, May 2019 online in um, the American uh, Journal of Ophthalmology. Uh, I'm just going to quickly summarize, and then we can discuss. So. They essentially looked in a prospective fashion. Uh, It was a double-masked, multi-center trial, and it was a very large study of 224 eyes with PDR that were um, going to have surgery, and they essentially were randomized to receive either uh, preoperative bevacizumab or not a standard dose, 1.25 milligrams or 0.05 mLs here in the U.S. Um, And they ended up with um, 214 eyes that ended up uh, finally getting through the study. They weren't, they excluded 10 And the important takeaways: would what it seemed to reduce intraoperative bleeding and improve surgical field visualization as graded, uh, and it reduced intraoperative and postoperative complications. The mean surgical time, just for comparison, was about 70 minutes in the study group, about 83 uh, minutes in the control group. That was not statistically significant, but almost with a p-value of 0.06. I'll start with Farina. So, um, first of all, reading this paper. Uh, let's just talk about the study first. Uh, any big takeaways in terms of limitations or or things you thought when you read it that you said, like, oh, you know, this is good results, but maybe you have to take this with a grain of salt?
2: Yeah, so um, I was really glad to see this paper. I think sort of, you know, anecdotally, a lot of retina specialists will use preoperative antiviragia, usually Avacin, um, prior to TRD repairs. But there isn't really a lot of great data around it. Um, Um, except for kind of having the experience interop that you have less bleeding, able to peel the membranes much better. Um, And so it was great to see a multi-center prospective trial done. That being said, surgical trials are always limited by surgeon variability, site variability. I think here we have the gauge, um, you know, different surgeons have different preferences for the gauge that's used particularly for TRD. So we don't have any control Um, really in that way. So I think, you know, we're held by the limitations of surgical trials as we see time and time again. But that being said, it's nice to see it being done. I do think that this could have been a nice opportunity for a matched case control. So in other words, perhaps by gauge, um, but also by, you know, we don't have too much information about what the anatomy of the detachments look like. If they were grouped by severity or something like that, that could have been helpful, or one-to-one match controls also could have been a helpful study design. That being said, I'm glad to see the results and that they're out there that are promising towards, you know, improved visualization, less postoperative vitreous hemorrhage, um, I think in terms of things like visual acuity that didn't have a big difference or the other thing that you mentioned, which is the surgical time approaching significance, While those things weren't that significant, I do think that, or weren't observed to be statistically significant, I think the value in not having post-operative VH is great um, from the patient standpoint and, and sort of thinking about whether or not you have to take the patient back to the OR, all that stuff is really helpful, and then also intraoperatively to have the better visualization, so I think there's
1: lots of positive findings here nonetheless. And Ali, I'm gonna let you comment in a second, but just to kind of go in specifically some of the complications uh, that were reduced, Farina referenced. Uh, We talked about intraoperative bleeding, but also um, iatrogenic retinal breaks was significantly less, 34% in the treatment group versus 59% in the control group. Use of silicone oil, 23% in the treatment group versus 42 to 43% in the uh, control group. Uh, And VH, we mentioned as well. Um, Ali, I mean, do, does any of this surprise you? Does this match your experience? Um, I think that the only thing I'll mention that really surprised me was the atrogenic break rate. I guess that's related to visualization and that ties in maybe to the higher use of oil again, like Serena says, surgical studies can be messy. Yeah, I think
0: that uh, to Farina's point in which you just mentioned, I mean, there's a pretty significant difference in the use of silicone oil. And, you know, in my experience, you know, we we all trained at the same place, and we routinely used, you know, anti-VEGF preoperatively, and I don't necessarily remember that decision sort of affecting things enough to make my decision about use of oil or not oil um, change much. So I, I do think that the visualization improves certainly with with use of anti-VEGF, which I think this study shows and matches what I think a lot of us feel. Um, clinically, but to Freena's prior point that we don't know enough about maybe the anatomy of each case, that they were, you know, directly matched, um, you know, was multivite center with multiple surgeons, which, you know, has some pros and cons to it. But the, the differential in use of silicone oil, I think, is a bit, um, you know, interesting and worthy of looking into it a little bit deeper. It's just if you know, the control group ended up having just worse um, TRDs, um, and that's why they use more oil. I think that changes how maybe I interpret the, the study results. But I think in terms of the data regarding, um, you know, bleeding and that sort of thing, I think it, it matches what I, what I thought. And I think, you know, there's that worry out there that if you give anti-VEGF, you, you make a TRD worse, you know, that crunch effect that we often say, should we inject or not? I think this helps um, give additional data that shows that maybe that's a, a bit of an overblown um, worry. I think there was only three of the 102 eyes with progression of TRDs who were who in the study side of things with the bevacizumab. So I thought that was encouraging as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think that um, the the oil thing, you know, it, it we talked about about that. I, I, I'm someone who who definitely will use oil in cases where I think it's war, I'm not someone who's oil opposed. But I do think that's a big differentiation because I think that in my you know anecdotal experience, when you once you get and this is again biased by the type of case you use oil in, but I feel like when you put oil in some of these eyes that have bleeding or um, membranes you peel, it can act as a scaffold for some more proliferation sometimes. So. That alone, I mean, post-operative VH from a a return to functional status standpoint, for rena reference, that's really important for these patients. Many who don't have great vision in their other eye and maybe poor social support. But if you're talking about long-term, I think sometimes if you could minimize the number of breaks and feel more comfortable not using oil, I think in general it's associated with better outcomes. Again, there is some selection bias in those cases. but. Um, well, let me open it for you guys, any further thoughts, but also for Rena. so if you're going to give pre-op antivagif, Ali reference this crunch phenomenon, when is kind of the optimal timing that you like to give it? And um, and how do you work out in terms of, for example, like medical clearance and things like that that may delay a surgery?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think there was some mention in the paper regarding um, renal, like there were some aspects that were discussed regarding the patient's systemic status that was Part of the calculus, Um, but you know, for me, I want the patient cleared with their pre-op HMP before I will do the anti vegf because I don't want it to be the case that I do the injection and then last minute because of you know, as you mentioned, number of reasons why these patients can have poor health status, poor mobility, poor you know kind of retention rate for like lack of a better word, you might lose. The patient in the time interval between you do the injection and when they show up to the OR, and so they can have adverse events from the injection. And I and I have seen that, and I I do think it is a real phenomenon. I guess again another area that there's a lot of discussion about, but we don't really have great literature on that. So I you know I'm not averse to doing it 24 to 48 hours before. I know in this paper they do um, three to five days prior um, as part of their protocol, which is maybe an optimal effect. Um, and I have seen it that when I do it earlier, I see that when I'm intra-op, there's a, it's less hot looking, which I like. Um, but balancing the risks otherwise, I think having them come in one to two days before is, is sort of good enough for me, knowing that I'll see them pretty soon afterwards in the OR.
1: How about you, Ali?
0: I mean, I, um, if if there's a surgical date and it's reasonable, the patient gets cleared, I'll, I'll still do it three to five days, you know, ahead. I think that's, that's a, a good interval. Um, assuming the patient, you know, is, is, is telling me they already have an appointment to get cleared, I don't necessarily wait to make sure they definitely get cleared. Um, like Freena said, I still think doing it 24 hours before is better than not doing it at all. And I, I think that that's been um, shown in some other studies as well, even 24 hours before does reduce bleeding. So, um, you know, the, the risk of adverse events with NWHF, I mean, the, they are there, but I think if they're going to surgery in a... In a reasonable amount of time. I think doing it uh, three to five days is 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 what i do, but if it was sort of a last minute thing and, and had to get rescheduled, I'd still think 24 hours before is, is fine.
1: And, and you know, crunch is a real thing, For to reference that. I think that it's everything in life is a risk-benefit. I think that anecdotally, I mean, I'm very strongly in favor, I think we all are using pre-op anti for these cases. I think there has been anecdotal reports, but now there's, there's some, this is a great study kind of looking at this that shows the benefits. I think the risk benefit of doing it and then maybe the surgery gets canceled, it just, I mean, if you think there's a high risk the surgery is going to get canceled, then then maybe it's better to wait and then call the patient once you're absolutely sure it's going to go forward and do it, like you said, 24 to 40 hours before. I think if there isn't necessarily a high risk it's going to get canceled, I don't think that that should preclude you from doing it. And I think we're all kind of in agreement about that. Um, so, I mean, the next thing is you know, and the last kind of final thing to talk about uh, in terms of timing, you referenced 24 hours. I mean, there's been reports from academic institutions of people even injecting and holding, for example, or even a few hours before and seeing that that make make a difference. I think it's an extreme example that'd be hard to do in the real world. But I think I've done 24 hours, and I think that it makes, I'd still rather do it in 24 hours than go ahead with nothing if I had to. Yeah, I agree.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. hmm
1: so tying into this idea of injections, the next study is Regmatogest Rental Detachment After intravitreal Injection of anti-vascular Endothelial Growth Factor. This was published by Story et al. from the group in Wells um, in um, Ophthalmology. Uh, this was published just uh, in April 2019. And, Brina, um, you want to tell us a little bit about this paper and what they showed?
2: Sure. So um, it's a retrospective single center review, evaluating rate, risk factors, and outcomes of RRD associated with intraperitual anti-independence injections, these patients, um, had received the injections for AMD and RVL, um, over the span of, I think it was 2014 to 2017, they had over, just over 180,000 injections and in just over 127,000 patients, so really robust. um, Sample size here. They had 24 patients who developed an RD, and they defined as their association with anti-VEGF as 90 days after injection, and so that gave a rate of 0.013%. In terms of the RDs that were seen, they were about 30 days out on average from the injection. Um, These patients had approximately 20 injections prior to their detachment, and variables that they looked at were physician experience, injection site, caliper use, gauge of needle and quadrant of injection, none of which were found to be associated with the risk um, of RRD. What they did see though, is that for those patients that had an RRD, the um, break was 62% of the time uh, within the quadrant of the the injection. Um, And then interestingly, they reported on the outcomes as well. And so over half of the case, uh, the surgical outcomes, and so over half of the cases were repaired with protractomy along, and the single surgery success rate there was 54%, half of which were attributed to um, the occurrence of PBR, if I understood their reporting correctly. Um, and then a couple of other interesting findings where they their multivariate analysis showed that younger age, male gender, um, and type of drug, specifically Devacizumab and A. associated with RD, and that, again, was, was multivariate analysis. Um, and then, of course, macular status at the time of detachment was... A contributing factor towards ultimate um, VA outcomes. So some interesting um, findings here. I think particularly in some ways the negative findings are really interesting and reassuring in terms of injection site, in terms of measurement, in terms of gauge of needle. We're not seeing a lot of variability for things like that, which is really good. Um, And then also the rate being low and likely consistent with you know, the sort of idiopathic rate. Well, I don't know if you'd call it idiopathic rate, but the sort of natural rate of RRD um, in in the general patient population. So all of that um, is, I think, reassuring and interesting. I think one thing that I was curious about um, would be whether or not these... if inferior, so a lot. So what was mentioned is that predominantly the docs and the study were doing the injections into our accounts, as we probably all remember from fellowship. And I would wonder if these primarily inferior detachments were more likely macula on, just from like a curiosity standpoint. I don't think it really changes my interpretation of things too much, but that would portend better outcomes. Maybe portend worse CVR. So I don't really know. Um, it's a small, very small sample size, and sort of the district of of um of rds i mean the number and so the their breakdown with their surgical techniques and surgical outcomes and all of that is a little bit hard to make too much of given that the number of events were small which is a positive finding in my opinion
1: yeah i mean you referenced just the, to be complete the limitations is retrospective it's you may not be capturing all the rds after injections that they followed up somewhere else um, and then you talked about some limitations just it's a surgical kind of study with low end with, that's retrospective, but it's still nice. And I think that the big takeaways reference, it's rare, but when it does happen, and it's interesting, I think that my kind of interpretation is if the the primary reattachment rate is lower and a lot of these tend to be mac off, I wonder if these patients, for either whether their vision is impaired because of um, whatever condition they're being injected for, or it's just because the breaks that happen with this are so small, they end up with these kind of chronic smoldering detachments, and then they come in, you know, and, and mm-hmm. the detachment's been there for yeah. some time, and then they're higher risk for PVR. I mean, Ali, what kind of things do you take away from the study?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that last point you made, Jay, it says, I, I think they even mentioned that, uh, you know, the average time to diagnosis was uh, a month after the injection.
1: So maybe they,
0: because they had RVO or AMD, their vision was down, so they maybe did not notice it, and they have already a different cytokine profile, which led to, you know, 20% of their patients showed preoperative PVR, which is pretty high for just a primary retinal detachment. So, um, you know, these they, are they people with baseline retinal disease, which changes the, the cytokine mix, maybe just presenting later because they didn't think there was something going on because they just come in for routine injection. So I think it's a, it's a setup for maybe the the, the most surprising top line, I think, result, which was the fifty, uh, approximately fifty percent single surgery anatomic success rate. So, because it was such a small n, I, I don't know how much you could really read into to hold that. Right, but, right.
1: Um,
0: it just goes to show that you know we. I think we we discuss endophthalmitis signs and mm-hmm. symptoms quite a bit, but um, I don't really go over the whole retinal detachment warnings with my injection patients very right, often right. Um, after maybe the first discussion, and uh, maybe this shows that we. Uh, at least of, print something out and just hand it to the patient so they at least know it and, and have it so it's, it's just not sort of forgotten. Because, um, you know, when it does happen, even though it's rare, it seems like they could be pretty bad. So um, it's not something to, to forget about.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that it's hard because many of these patients post-injection have floaters from little air bubbles, things like that, are in the syringe. So they, especially if they've gotten multiple injections, they're kind of used to seeing weird things in their vision. They're really, really well coached, as you said, about pain and, and severe loss of vision. But if it's something subtle like this, especially if they're underlying like neovascular AMD and, and they have some damage from that, yeah, you're right. I mean, we really need to maybe think about adding that to our education in post op because even though it's rare, it's not so rare. I mean, we, we do, inje- infection is rare, right? Infection post injection is one in the few thousands. I mean, that's a similar rate that you see here. So maybe this should be part of our education.
0: Yeah. And I mean, they seem to be able to repair these in multiple different ways. So it sounds like some of these were maybe bigger, smaller, et cetera, like what Farina mentioned, but, uh, you know, the baseline visual acuities for most of these people was, was pretty bad. So, um, you know, it seems like if it's either the underlying disease or it showed up late, Um, These people are already set up for, I I think, complications from PVR more than maybe a regular retinal detachment. So I think it was a good idea to include this study as kind of a separate group of retinal detachment patients because I don't think the injections maybe uh, fit the story of a a regular regmatitis retinal detachment. I think this study actually convinces me maybe more of that, which is why some of the trends like younger patients um, a lot of these people already had PVDs, so you know I would think, okay, maybe the injection induced some sort of vitreous change, but you know that that doesn't fully add up. So um, maybe if we can get more information from other institutions, we'll we'll find out more. But it seems like there's not a whole lot you can do to prevent it. You just deal with it after the fact.
1: Yeah, uh, and we're going to transition to injections. Last study is use of bevacizumab and ranibizumab for wet AMD, influence of CAT results, and introduction of flippercept by Pershing et al. Um, Ali, just want to tell us briefly about this study, and we can discuss?
0: Yeah, so this was an analysis of basically bevacizumab and ranibizumab use after the publication of the CAT trial, and also the introduction of Fliberceps to see if patterns of drug usage changed from either the results of a clinical trial or the introduction of a new agent, that being a They looked at a couple different databases of Medicare and also some managed care patients, and they realized that, you know, one, the CAT publication did seem to influence physicians to lean more towards Bevacizumab. So if you were using randomizumab before, you maybe were more likely to switch. And if you were already using Bevacizumab, that rate stayed um, actually the same. So the people who favored it before tended to favor it after. And actually, what I was a bit surprised with, that uh, introduction of a Flibriceps didn't really have a big um, impact on the preferences for ranibizumab and pevacizumab after the uh, commercial introduction. So, you know, it goes to show that, you know, we kind of go into these publications and from studies like CAT and also big new trials for new agents quite a bit And with, you know, the, the initial phase three trials and also sub-analyses. But this was actually looking like uh, looking at if our behavior actually changed and maybe it didn't as much as we would have expected.
1: Farina, and again, the qualifier just for listeners, Farina, I know you do have a role with Genentech, but um, just kind of your, your thoughts about this study and, and what kind of um, interpretation you get. And Ali, I can kind of give a very good summary. It's really amazing to see what an impact a single study can have on usage. I think that it, I would actually say it doesn't indicate the ophthalmologists are fair weather. I think it's actually showing that people do respond to the literature if something is published and you know, kind of put out there in the meetings, in the, in the papers, people do read them and modify their behaviors. I think it's actually very encouraging. Um, but what are your thoughts on, on this study and, and kind of how this may help us in terms of, you know, I, and maybe this also, and, and I'm going to open this up for you guys, maybe this also means that we have to be very cautious about how we interpret trial results because you can sway opinion a lot depending on how a trial is interpreted and uh, publicized.
2: Yeah, I really liked this um, paper. I think it was a great use of sort of big data. They looked at Medicare and commercial, which I thought was really, like, it was just a very well-designed study. Um, so I appreciated that. Um, I think the cat—it was—it was thoughtful in that the CAT trial results were, you know, sort of a hot topic and much anticipated. So it's a really interesting question. I think to Ellie's point, though, you know, we see, you know, sometimes time and again that behaviors don't change sort of right away and it takes a little time to catch up with, you know, trial results or even kind of changes in the retina landscape. Um, And so there was some change in rate uh, of usage as they looked at the three different time points in the study, which I thought was interesting. Um, One interesting point that they made is that the majority of the docs stayed with whichever drug that they had used before and after um, and no significant changes in preference after the results. Um, And of those that were majority users, though, that I thought was interesting, two-thirds of randomizumab, two-thirds didn't continue onwards um, of those that were the greater than 80% kind of majority users, whereas 75% of those stayed with Avacin. So I think it kind of reinforces the fact that Avacin is such a majority of the use of anti-VEGF. And I think that seeing that change very much is hard to achieve in these sorts of studies. We did a similar study at Wills using the Bestroom database looking at changes in utilization of these same three drugs as related to protocol T. And similarly, Avastin always kind of has a stronghold and remains consistently a majority-use drug. But we saw an inverse relationship between decreased use, utilization of ranibizumab and increased My One takeaway for me is I think it will be interesting to see how bralicizumab kind of influences the market and kind of how long that takes because certainly we know that a has gained, you know, from kind of this time point that they looked at to what we see now. So it'll be interesting to see how bralicizumab does early and sort of later, in my opinion.
1: Well, Ali and Farina, I would love to continue the conversation. Uh, you guys, thanks so much for your time. The OR waits for no women or man surgeon, so I have to run. Uh, but thank you again Good for lot. your time, Farina, especially from calling us across the ocean. Ali, for calling us across no the country, problem. across like 15 time zones between us. And uh, guys, thanks again. All
2: right, all right take, care. take care. Thanks, Jay. Bye, Ali.
1: Bye. Bye-bye. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 176 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. You'll also find our blog, Equal Round Reactive, Lessons From Our Pupils. Remember, you can now claim CME credits for select podcast episodes via the AAO website. Simply log in as an AAO member and visit the link in the episode description. Also on the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the Apple Podcast Store as well as Google Play. You can also like our Facebook page or find us in the Apple Store or Android Store. We are on Twitter at Retina Podcast and to consciousness link on the contest link on our website or email us at retinapodcast.gmail.com. We love getting feedback on things we can do better and things we are already doing well. As I mentioned, the survey uh, that's going around will be super helpful, and we always appreciate the positive comments people leave in the Apple Store and Android Store. Many thanks to Dr. Ali and Dr. Khan for joining me. Thanks to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angela Chang, and Dr. Michael Benincasa for preparing this episode. Finally, thank you listeners for what you do on a daily basis the patient care provide, the articles you read, and publish in the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder, signing off. The feeling.
0: This is straight from the cutters <laughs> mouth. <laughs> Take care.
1: Bye-bye.